The year was 1965. One, two, 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 one, two. Seagulls float between the buildings, born on the back of a wing. Power clock strikes in the cold night air, and the sounds of Liddy Welcome to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series, Volume 1, Should Have Been There, Volume 2, Shivering Inside, and Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com. Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour. It is the 1st of January, 1965. You're Brian Epstein. And before you lies the year of 1965, ready for a complete replay, because you have lived this year once. And now, you're being given the chance to do it all over again. What would you do differently? What would you have the Beatles not do? Avoid. That's the question we're going to answer in just a few minutes. We're going to pose that question to four of the most distinguished Beatles authors in America and to all of you listening. We're going to invite you to call in tonight and to take part in our program at 646-668-2641. But first, let me set the scene. In 26 days, they'll be arriving in Chicago wearing Beatles t-shirts, singing Beatles songs, and carrying their guitars and tambourines. They'll laugh and wave and shout to old friends and make new ones, and they'll gather for Mark, Carol, Michelle, and Jessica Lapidos' Chicago Fest for Beatles fans. It'll all happen August 14th through the 16th at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. Over the two days that follow, the fans are going to rock to the sounds of Liverpool. They're going to convert right along with rocker Mark Hudson. They're going to meet Jack Oliver, the head of Apple, and the wonderful Bob Eubanks, who not only hosted the newlywed game, but brought the Beatles to America three times, including the Hollywood Bowl. They'll listen to fascinating tales from Ivor Davis, who toured with the Beatles in 1964, and they'll give big, gigantic Harrison hugs to Louise Harrison, who worked so diligently in America to help promote her kid brother's band. But in my opinion, what fans look forward to the most, what I look forward to the most when I was coming to the fest as a fan, is attending the lectures and discussions and panels on various Beatles topics throughout the weekend, led by some of the most respected authors on the planet. And tonight, you're going to get a sneak peek. You're going to find out exactly what happens at a Fest for Beatles fans panel discussion and seminar. We have with us some of the people who make the fest so very special. Bruce Spicer, author of at least eight, maybe more, books about the Beatles, who's going to be featuring at this fest his latest expanded ebook, 
The Beatles on Capitol Records. If you have that book in physical form, this book is different. It's enhanced. There is a ton of new material, and you're definitely going to want to get it. Chuck Gunderson, author of a great two-volume work. If you don't have it, what are you waiting for? Some fun tonight. It covers every aspect, and I mean every aspect, of the historic North American tours that the Beatles made so special. Al Sussman, his book is a lesson in what made the Beatles click. And no, 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 it is not just the death of President John Kennedy. Far from that. In Changing Times 101, he's going to talk about the 101 days that shaped a generation, and he'll trace the historical impact of those crucial days between the 22nd of November 1963, when President Kennedy was assassinated, up to the beginning of March of 1964. And Andrew Jackson, whose book actually inspired the last two John Lennon hours. It's entitled 1965, The Most Revolutionary Year in Music, and that prompted all of us to gather for two weeks in a row to talk about 1965. So let's bring on our special guest, and then we're going to talk about that question that we posed at the top of the hour. First, from the 504 area code, I believe we have a True Blue Saints fan. Bruce, are you there? I certainly am, Jude. Wouldn't miss it. Thank you so much for coming back. I really do appreciate it. Glad to and be here. 201, let's bring our, our friend Al on. Al, are you there? Let's see if we can get him on, Bruce. I see the little dial spinning around and around. We've got I don't to have know. Al. I think um, he's there. I'm here. Yay! How are you? There you are. <laughs> How are you, Jude? We're great. Thank you, too. This is going to be and such a I great Bruce. night. I am so... Bruce, he's and hailing you, son. Hi, Bruce. Yeah, I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> okay, and then let's see. This should be Andrew. Andrew, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Good. Thanks you sound good. You're coming... Well, we're glad to have you coming through loud and clear. So now I'm hoping that this is going to be Chuck. Let's see if we have Chuck. Is this you? Try it one more time. Chuck, are you on the line? Chuck, are you on the line? I'm here. Great. That is great. Well, we are going to just plunge right into that question that we posed at the very beginning of the show. You're Brian Epstein. You're standing at the beginning of 65. You've lived it before, and now you're going to get a chance to do it all over again. Chuck, since we brought you on last, we'll hand it to you first. What would you do differently, and what would you have the Beatles do differently? Can you hear us, Chuck? Yep, I can hear. Can you hear me? Yeah, no, I couldn't for a minute there. Okay, great. I'm calling you, by the way, in the middle of Death Valley, California, so cellular coverage, I guess, works out here. So we were going to end it. We were going to end the show uh, last time on this question. And so, uh, would would there be a lot of things I would change? Yeah, there would be a few things I would change. But I think if I were Brian Epstein, I would have arranged a better ride back to the airport at the conclusion of the North American '65 tour. Uh, in my book, I found some amazing images of the Beatles coming out of the Cabana Hotel where they stayed out the back door, and there's a few kids there waiting for them. And the sequence of shots has them being led 
to a large freight truck, and the beetles are being herded into the freight, the back of a freight truck in a very dirty uh, freight truck. Uh, Ringo doesn't even want to sit down because it's so dirty. He's standing uh, kind of uh, in the freight truck. And that's how genuine superstars in 1965 were delivered back to San Francisco International Airport, having played one of the most successful rock and roll tours in all history, delivered in the back of a dirty freight truck. I'm sure Brian Epstein probably took a limo. (laughs) And did they complain about that? I don't think they could complain. I think they were told just what to do. I think Tony Barrow rounded him up and said, you know, I need you here at this time. And they let him down the corridor and out the back door. And they said, you see that truck over there? Get in the back. We're going to close it up and take you out of here. Well, I guess compared to the meat truck in Washington, D.C., and then the laundry truck that Cynthia and Patty were in in Ireland, and the back of the open truck in the rain during the world tour, they thought that was pretty good. Probably so. They, the Beatles, unfortunately, uh, the time they spent in America was a lot in a truck <laughs> with yeah. no windows. A room in a truck and a truck in a room. Exactly. <laughs> Well, Bruce, how about you? You're you're Brian, so what would you change having lived it once? Jude, you have to have me back next year for 1966 because there's plenty I'd do differently in 1966. <laughs> but 1965, let's 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 review. We have worldwide single releases of Ticket to Ride, Help, We Can Work It Out, and Day Tripper. I ain't gonna change that. Oh, Capital puts out eight days a week and yesterday. I think I'll allow that to happen again. We have a help album. Oh, actually, two of them. And they both sell extremely well, one in the States, one in the U.K. And, oh, by the way, this little album called Rubber Soul, which we hurried out. And, oh, yeah, need I forget, they had a successful tour of the United States where they made more money playing half the concerts. So I don't think I'd change anything. No, no, wait, 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 wait. I stop. I'm Brian. I would change one thing. For Bruce Spicer... Beatles fan living in New Orleans, I would have had the Beatles come back to New Orleans. Other than that, I wouldn't (laughs) change a thing. That is fantastic. And I guess when you think about it, if all we have to complain about is having to ride in the back of the truck at the end of the tour, it's pretty good, isn't it? A pretty good year. Just an incredible year, but I can't wait till next year when I tell you what I'd have done differently with 1966. Okay, if I, if I don't remember, you remind me because we want this same group to get back together again to do the 66 show. This is a great, that's a great idea. I love it. Well, Andrew, all right, it's, it's down to you. So you're Brian. What are you changing about 65, if anything? Let's see. I would have brought back the Hard Day's Night Rider for help. Um, I would have told the Beatles not to smoke pot before they shoot their scenes just so they're a little bit sharper like the uh, previous movie. Um, I would have told John not to rub Elvis and Carol King the wrong way with some of his uh, <laughs> touchy comments. Yeah, that would have gone over well. Kind of my old... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you wouldn't have listened, right? But, uh, I would have cut down on my own pills, you know, taking the pills that I've taken, obviously. And, and I would have tried to settle with that guy. What was his name? Nicky Byrne, where they had the huge merchandising lawsuit mm-hmm. that cost $78 million because with Woolworths and J.C. Penney's, they bowed out. You know, I would have just said with that guy, hey, look, let's just 
let's just settle. So they could have got that money. And then um, I would have told John, just never mention Christianity ever in advance. I would tell them a year in advance. Just don't talk about it. Well, well, you would have just assured yourself of John mentioning Christianity and being even ruder to those two people. <laughs> True. <laughs> you know you know how that works. Well, all right, you definitely made some changes. So, Al, we're coming to you for the, for the last word. Anything you change? I'm going to take uh, Bruce's cue and change absolutely nothing. Uh, in fact, along with everything else that, uh, uh, that Bruce mentioned, uh, the Beatles also did a tour of, uh, um, of Europe in the spring of 65, including some uh, large venues, and sold them out. And also, early in the year, in February, Ringo got married. The first, uh, the first time that any of the group had gotten married since they had attained world fame. Obviously, when, uh, when John finally revealed that he was married, they were still on the rise. But, right. in, Febu- but in February of 65, Ringo married Maureen Cox, and there was actually, despite how popular Ringo was, especially in America, there was very little in the way of fan blowback. So you could yeah. add that to all of the other positive developments during 65. So I really would, uh, and other than the modes of, tra- I'm taking Chuck's cue, other than the modes of transportation during the, uh, during the tours, uh, I, would, uh, I would change nothing. Well, now, Andrew makes some pretty valid points about, you know, the, the Nikki Byrne cell tab thing. Uh, anyway, just throwing this out there, we didn't talk about that uh, beforehand, but any way that any of you see a way that could have been handled better? Well, you know, in all fairness to Brian, merchandising and rock and roll really was not much of a thing in those days. Now, you go to a concert and the T-shirt cost, what, $50, $60, and the band's getting 80% of it or more. But think of it the way Brian was looking at it was a guy comes to you and he says, I'm going to put your band's name on T-shirts, wallets, pantyhose, everything, you name it, and I'm not going to charge you anything for this publicity. I'll even give you Mm -hmm. a percentage of it. Sounds like a pretty good deal at the time, so in all fairness to Brian, um, you know, it sounds like a good deal at the time. Obviously, by today's standards, it was a horrible deal that he made back yeah. in 63 on the merchandising, but you have to put it in proper context. Yeah, and he right. was so overwhelmed at that point, beyond overwhelmed, and really trusted that you know his attorney would advise him on that. And, you know, uh, Nikki Byrne at that time seemed the perfect choice. It just did not turn out the way that everyone thought it would turn out. It was uh, pretty shocking. Well, we are going to open the phone line, so if you would like to ask your question about year of 1965, please call in, and we would love to chat with you. Uh, I do have a caller who has been waiting on the line patiently for about five minutes, so we will bring him or her on the line from the 215 area code. Hello, this is the John Lennon Hour. Hi, Jude. It's Michelle. Hey, Michelle Perlman from Philly. How are you? I'm fine. I'm still finishing up She Loves You. There's so much information. I like, well, my dad's so amazed that I know more about the Beatles than him at this point. 
Well, I really appreciate you taking uh, the time to read it. It's a tome. Thank you very, very much. Well, Michelle, you have four of the, the best minds in America about the Beatles, so fire away. Okay, my question is to everybody. Um, obviously, I was not around in 1965, unfortunately, so I never got to see the Beatles. I to see Paul McCartney three times now in stadiums, and obviously technology is better now than it was in 65. But my question is a two-parter. How difficult was it for the Beatles to play in these huge arenas and stadiums and be able to keep on beat with all the screaming fans? And did they ever get to a point where they just went through the movements and pretty much lip-synced and didn't produce any sounds just so they could do their stuff and get off stage? Um. Yeah, I think on that, first of all, it was extremely difficult, but you have to understand that these guys had played together for so many years, and the instinct and tightness they had that even if they weren't hearing everything on stage, they still were able to pull it off and sound pretty tight, which is incredible. And I think even in 65, they're still pulling it off. Shea Stadium, they certainly uh, you know, pull it off, and they have to sweeten some things, but that's a lot of that's due to the recording aspects, the bass wasn't loud enough, uh, as opposed to faulty performances. Um, the Beatles never did lip-sync anything. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, Britney Spears jumping up on stage and saying, it's okay if I lip-sync because I'm dancing. I mean, the Beatles got up there and they, and they gave it their all. There was no lip-syncing. Um, in those days, it was rare for it. On TV, lip-syncing was common, but when the Beatles did the Ed Sullivan show, it was live. Uh, when the Dave Clark Five did the Ed Sullivan show, Sullivan relented and allowed him to lip sync. And of course, one time the tape got stuck, and it was very embarrassing. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of the Beatles was that because of the tightness they had, they were able to pull it off. And it's only in '66 when you listen to some of the recordings where they really are not getting the job done. Perhaps the music's more complex. Perhaps they're kind of tired. Perhaps they're throwing in the towel a little bit. But in '65, uh, they were still on their game, and definitely no lip syncing. The only time I can think of, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Bruce, is in the Netherlands that first night of the world tour. But it's a weird thing because they're miming to their music, but then they give them microphones in case they want to sing along with it, which is so bizarre. But that's yeah, the that only was. time I can think of. Yeah, I mean, certainly in the states, they were, you know, really giving it and. You know, and there were times when when they would do a music thing like the Revolution or Hey Jude videos, the music track was there, but they were singing live over it, you know, to get it right. So uh, I think, and you know, and you can when you hear the concert tapes, you can you can hear the slight imperfections and the excitement of it all. So, you know, unfortunately, right. there are a lot of things out there one can listen to. Well, Chuck, you're our our tours guy. What what do you um, have to add to that? Because I know you you know about everything that happened on that stage. Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And like Bruce said, uh, the Beatles in 1965 were definitely not the Millie Vanilli uh, that we used to know, the lip syncers. They never lip sync on stage in the U.S., at least. And uh, I remember watching several interviews with Ringo because, you know, probably the hardest part in a band is being a drummer and trying to follow the lead of the music and keeping the beat and keeping in the pocket. And Ringo used to say, you know, you know, how how'd you, how did you, how are you keeping in time with this? And he said, well, I was barely hanging on. And the only way I used to 
hang on is watch watch them wiggle their butts. I kind of knew where they were in the song. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. one, one of the things, too, is uh, one of the huge myths I exploded in my book was uh, that in 1965, when they played Atlanta Stadium, uh, many people think that there were feedback monitors on stage. And this was the first example of feedback monitors where the Beatles could actually hear themselves play. Uh, if you listen to the tape from Atlanta, Paul talks about how great the sound is. John talks about how great the sound is. So there you go. There's feedback monitors on stage. Well, finally, we found some pictures from Atlanta uh, that really were kind of non-existent. And uh, in researching the book, we finally uncovered them. And on the stage at Atlanta, there are no feedback monitors at all. It's a typical <laughs> stage setup. And I think the reason that they heard themselves in Atlanta was twofold. One of them, they, one is that they came, the first show was New York Shea Stadium, completely sold out, 55,600 seats. I mean, the sound must have just been deafening. Uh, Shea Stadium was just a few years older than Atlanta Stadium. The next venue they played was Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens. Well, the gardens were built in the 20s. I mean, one of the oldest yeah. venues that they played. The 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 just had to have been horrendous, you know, the noise in there. So the third venue they play is Atlanta Stadium, brand new stadium, the latest in public sound technology. And the big difference between Atlanta Stadium and Shea Stadium was that only 30,000 people were there in a 55,000-seat venue. Sure. Whereas Shea was completely sold out. Atlanta had over 25,000 empty seats. So you had a lot less sound coming down upon them. Therefore, when Paul would say, hey, this is great sound, now we know why. And there were no right. feedback monitors. That's and they, and I love that. Wearing, so interesting. And they weren't wearing earpieces or anything like that. No, no, no earpieces. No. <laughs> well, Al, what can you add? Well, as a matter of fact, um, um, one of the reasons why uh, Paul and Ringo, and by extension Olivia and Yoko, have been so reluctant to release the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl um, on CD is for that very reason, that, they're, that hmm. they just don't feel their performances. And, that's, and, of course, that album encompassed performances from both the 64 and 65 Hollywood Bowl shows, that those performances are just not up to their standards, which mm-hmm. is also why there was never a Beatles live album released in, in that time, you know, during the 60s, even though uh, George Martin had wanted to record them at the Cavern and then later on had wanted to record them at Carnegie Hall. There never was right. a Beatles live album. And along with, um, um, as Chuck was saying about Ringo uh, being able to sort of read uh, read the other's butts, uh, he also has said that he got, um, he got in the habit of lip reading as well to, uh, mm-hmm. to get an idea of where, uh, <laughs> where in the song he was. Right. Right, and sometimes watching John's hands because he knows John's strumming on the two and four instead yeah. of the one and three, and you know yeah. that that was another, as you said last week, clue to the new direction or to the yeah. direction period. So, yeah, exactly. well, Andrew, we'll give you the last word on this one. I don't have much to add after all these experts, except I mean, some of their 
a lot of their early albums, I mean, those are basically their live performances in a sense. Like, isn't, wasn't rock and roll music like one take because they had just been doing it so much, they just banged it out and, you know, twist and shout. And so in a way, those are kind of like hearing them live, you know, they're just a, yeah. at the crowd scream. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Michelle, did that answer your question? It did. I just thought always that the Beatles, they were the first band to perform live in Shea Stadium. They were the first concert there. So when you said that the stadium was a couple of years old, that was something I didn't know. I thought Shea was built in um, late 64, early 65, and were, quote, unquote, opening it kind of like how Paul opened City Field in 2009. Mm. So that's something I didn't know. Well, well, you know Alan, what you need? Alan Del Wynn Shea was opened. I'm sorry? Al Sussman, you would know when Shea was open. It wasn't uh, it Shea opened in April, in April of 64. Okay, thank so you. So it was a little over a year old when the Beatles played there. That's right. So you know what you need, Michelle? When you get to the fest in Chicago, and I hope you're going, you need to go by Al's table and grab his book, Changing Times, and then run over to Chuck's table and get some fun tonight. Then go right on over to Bruce's, pick up his new ebook, and right over to Andrew's and get 1965, and then you're set. I won't even have to go to that master's degree course in Liverpool. All I have to do is come to Beatles Fest, and I'll get my master's degree <laughs> in all things Beatles. You got that right. You got that right. Well, we thank you so very much. You're such a, a devoted, dedicated fan. Thank you for calling and for giving us such a great question. Thank you. See you soon, Michelle. Thank you for calling. All right, we have another caller who has been holding for quite some time, and this caller is from the 870 area code, which I believe is Tennessee. Let's bring them on. Let's see. It's twirling around and around and around. Will this person come on the air? Still trying to connect. Oh, there you go. Hello. Welcome to the John Lennon Hour. Hey, Jude. Is this Cameron? Yes, ma'am. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, I am just wonderful. Can't wait to see you at the fest. It's going to be your first fest for Beatles fans, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, I have Well, fire away with your... I know you have a great question you want to ask these gentlemen, so just ask away. Well, my question is, with the discussion on the Beatles' influence on 1965 and 1965's influence on the Beatles, what do you think the single most influential events in their careers that the Beatles had on music or culture? Woo, the single most influential event in their career. Al, you want to start off with this one? Well, are we talking just about 65? Right, sir. Okay. Uh, I've got actually two. One would be their concert at Shea Stadium, which was, as as Chuck uh, documented last week, was the first major concert big-time rock-and-roll concert before a, a full house and a 55,000-seat stadium. And in, in a way, it kind of showed the way toward other big, you know, big rock events, both mm-hmm. at Shea Stadium and at other uh, venues all over the country and all over the world. Uh, and the other one would be the, uh, the release of Rubber Soul uh, in December. 
of 65 because uh, that was a, a quantum leap musically for the Beatles and showed how much that they were absorbing a lot of the new changes that were going on, changes that they had set in motion the previous year, but the changes that were going on in in the rock arena. But also that album was immensely influential. Uh, Brian Wilson has uh, long said that Rubber Soul is the the album, even though the the two Beach Boys albums that were released in '65. Uh, the Beach Boys Today and Summer Days and Summer mm-hmm. Nights had aspects to them that kind of presaged, presaged uh, pet sounds. Um, mm-hmm. Rubber Soul was really the uh, the vehicle that kind of directly led the way mm-hmm. to pet sounds and to so much, right. so many other great albums of that time. So I'd say those two would be the most influential Beatles events or you know, uh, uh, effects of 1965. Okay. Uh, Andrew, do you uh, have something different? Agree, disagree? For, uh, I guess, um, yeah, I, well, I would say, well, their hair, but that you, you said 64, their hair is one of the most culturally important things probably. But but then, yeah, I would agree with Robert Soul, maybe even Norwegian Wood as an example of how they were going to begin to start progressing sonically every every album like that that was like a totally weird sound you know and so that that just uh, they they led the way in being artists popular artists who would experiment so i think that was hugely important as an example right for other artists anything else that besides rubber soul um you know i i, th- I think like uh, the other you know their other yesterday maybe that you know with the strings that started opening the the doors to baroque for a lot of people to embrace like using classical instruments and that was another another good one absolutely absolutely well bruce how about you well you know i i have to defer to al's two biggies uh with shay and its impact and then rubber soul and i and i think the key thing about rubber soul is that up in prior to the Beatles, the dominant format were singles. Kids bought singles. They didn't buy albums unless they were rich. Albums generally in the U.S. had 12 songs, two hit singles, and 10 songs of filler, garbage for the most part. The Beatles from the beginning gave you an entire album, and they were albums of great songs. But when you get to Rubber Soul, it's more than just great songs, but it's it's something that makes sense as an entire album, more so than anything else they had done before. And you, mm-hmm. it's a time, I think, the first time where an album is viewed as a work of art itself and not a collection of songs put together, albeit even great songs. And I think that that is a key thing. And as remarkable as the Beatles were, bear in mind that Rubber Soul was thrown together in about a month's time because the record company said, oh, my God, we need an album out for Christmas. We realize we're in October, but you guys got to get an album out for us. And in the U.K., that means 14 songs. And, oh, by the way, we'd like a hit single as well. So when you consider the short amount of time that they had to do Rubber Soul, it's truly remarkable. So I agree with Al entirely, and I just can't emphasize enough how brilliant an album it was and it was done so quickly under such crazy conditions. It's just totally remarkable. 
you kind of answered a question I was going to ask you because you said, and in the UK they included 14 tracks. So both you and Al are talking about the Parlophone rubber sole rather than the Capital rubber sole, right? No, I, I was talking. Al and I were probably talking about the the Capital rubber sole because that album was the album that Brian Wilson listened to. He didn't. He probably didn't mm-hmm. even know it was different in the UK. Okay, good. And, good. You know, They're dry, so drastically and, different. They are, and, and what we're going to have to do in a couple of months or maybe in October, November, or early December, we have to do a show, and Al and I, I'm already volunteering Al, uh, you know, rubber sole, and a U.S. rubber sole, U.K. rubber sole, which is better and why. So you got okay, to show for December. At- uh, okay, I'm looking at the calendar right now, and that is going. We are going to do that. How about the first Thursday night in December? I'm putting it on the calendar for the third of December. You got a deal. Okay, okay rubber sole. Okay, we'll I just wrote it on there right now. Well, Chuck, you have the last word. Well, I agree with all these fine gentlemen that just uh, spoke about this, but I have to throw a date out to you: August third, nineteen. 19- 63, where were the Beatles playing and performing? The Cavern. Just two years later, August 15th, 1965, Shea Stadium. An amazing leap from an underground cellar to one of the biggest stages of the world, okay, in just just two years. And to think about the wonderment on their faces when they ran out to that. I mean, I love that scene when they are introduced and they run out of the dugout and then just kind of kind of running yet taking it all in like can this really be true i mean are we really here and if we remember anthology uh toward the end of one of the uh, chapters um all of them in unison say that shea stadium was pivotal in their career right for me i mean and being the tour guy i mean shea stadium was was the pinnacle you know and john lennon said it himself you know it was the top of the top of the heap another thing i think that really changed culturally for them in 1965 was that the questions asked by the press were getting a little more serious and they were taking the beatles as spokesmen kind of for a generation for an up-and-coming generation I mean, sure, there were the stupid questions still, like, you know, what advice do you give for, for people that have pimples? And when they're in San Diego, you know, did you learn how to surf and all this stuff? Um, but then there were a lot of very serious questions about Vietnam, and, and the Beatles all stood for what they believed in, that the war was wrong. Uh, I mean, for imports to come into our country and to, and to tell America's youth that, you know, the war is wrong. That takes a lot of guts to do that. Um, And they were asked about political things as well. So I think that really shifted. And listening to this younger generation speak for this new generation. And then also, um, you know, with Shea and everything, it would be very interesting to speculate, as I said last week. Would Woodstock have happened? Would Altamont happen? Would Watkins Glen happen? would have live aid happened. I'm not sure. But the Beatles proved that they could bring a lot of people into one place to hear rock and roll music. Absolutely true. And let me add just one footnote, Cameron, for you, because Cameron is uh, 13 and um, does beautiful Beatles music on the piano and just won a, a music competition. 
So when you hear Chuck saying that, you know, in 63 in August they're playing the Cavern and then by 65 they're playing Shea Stadium, let me just remind you that the Quarrymen are formed in 57, Paul comes aboard in 58, and before they get to that pivotal moment, they played the Indra and the Kaiser Keller and they live in the Bambi Kino and they, they are in horrible places in Liverpool like the new club artiste. So if it takes you a while to get where you're going, Cameron, it's okay, because once you hit that tipping point, you're going to skyrocket. So thank you for your great, great question, and thank you for calling in tonight. You're welcome. Okay, we'll see you at the Fest for Beatles fans. See you too, dude. Okay, Bye. thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye, got another, Bye. Got another caller waiting to talk to you guys. You are vastly popular. This is from the 212 area code. Who do we have on the line from 212? Hey there, Jude. My name is Jim Ryan. You may or may Jim not... Jim Ryan! How are you? That's great. That's great. It's so um, good to hear from you. How are you feeling? How's your arm? Oh, well, let's put it this way. Um, I can't necessarily support that many left-wing causes because that's a shoulder that's <laughs> off me. <laughs> Well, that's okay. Susan's upholding the banner, so you don't have to worry about it. But enough of the, uh, but enough <laughs> of the uh, minutiae. Um, I did have a question for the group panel at large. Um, we were talking a little bit about how important 1965 is for the Beatles, and I know there's a general question about 1965 as a year for popular music. Um, for those of us who may have come into this conversation a little late, and I'm sorry to be the one who sort of wakes up in the middle of the meeting going, what, 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 what? <laughs> um, I, I have to ask, why 1965? What's the 101 on why that year is so important as opposed to everything else? This is not so much for my edification, but for the sake of the general listener out there who might be turning in for the f- first time tonight. It's a good question, really good question. And I think, Chuck, let's start with you. I don't think you've had a first shot at anything tonight. Oh, well, I'm going to defer to to Andrew. I mean, he wrote the book on it, and, uh, you know, just uh, hearing what he had to say, I mean, gal, I I forgot how important 1965 was, but uh, just everything that, that came out that year in terms of, in terms of music, I mean, let's let's think here just for a minute. I mean, you have the debut from the Bo Brummels. You got Barbara Streisand out there. You got Sam Sham and the Pharaohs, Beach Boys, Moody Blues, even John Coltrane. And, I mean, for me, one of the songs that defined this, this whole upcoming generation was the Who's My Generation. I mean, that came out in 65. Um, so that just really speaks to the era and, you know, I want to let Andrew kind of elaborate on that because I think he's got most of the goods on that one. Go Andrew. Well, thanks. Um, uh, I was, I think there were five kind of cultural forces kind of hit all at the same time. You had the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the birth control pill, psychedelics, and then the long hair those all made people want to um, question authority and assert their own freedom. And so the musicians started uh, reflecting that in their music. And uh, lyrically, Bob Dylan kind of led the way in changing the rules of pop lyrics, making them a lot more deeper and visionary. 
and then the Beatles and the Beach Boys and the Stones and Yardbirds, Kinks. A lot of me, they were all doing so many experiments musically that there were so many new sounds and, uh, uh, you know, new genres created that year. And as um, people were alluding to earlier, you know, became the year that the album kind of came into its own. And, uh, you know, James Brown introduced um, funk, you know, so it was just, it was kind of just a watershed year for tons of new yeah. new innovations. Absolutely, absolutely. Bruce? Well, I think, you know, when you look at certain years and you look at the number one songs of the year, you cringe sometimes. But look at 1965. Satisfaction by the Stones. Yesterday. Turn, turn, turn by the birds. Uh, Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. Okay, it's a little amp, but it's a fun song. Sonny and Cher's I Got You, Babe. Help by the Beatles. The Four Tops, I Can't Help Myself. Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Downtown, Batula Clark. This Diamond Ring, Gary Lewis and the Playboys. The Supremes mm-hmm. with Stop in the Name of Love. The Beach Boys, Help Me, Rhonda. Stones, Get Off My Cloud. Supremes, I Hear a Symphony. Freddie and the yeah. Dreamers, I'm telling you now. Eight Days a Week. My Girl by the Temps, Hang On Sloopy. Mr. Tambourine Man, Eve of Destruction. Barry Maguire, you know, a political wow. song. Dave Clark Five, Over and Over. Ticket to Ride, Beatles. I'm Henry VIII, I Am, by Herman's Hermits. The Game of Love by Wayne Fontana and the Membiners. Supremes with mm-hmm. Back in My Arms Again. Quickly at the number two songs, just a few. Love is Concerto. You know, that's that Baroque-type yeah. sound. Willie Bully, yeah. kind of, you know, um, rolling like a Rolling Stone, Bob Dylan. Uh, you know, you get the idea. I Got You, I Feel Good by James Brown and number three. Uh, right. You know, and so you get the idea that just everything that we were listening to that was running up the charts was worth listening to. There wasn't really any horrendous song, you know, like Billy Don't Be a Hero that's topping the charts. That every time you hear it, you go, <laughs> oh, my God. Two years later, I'm going to say two words right now that you will hate me for saying because it will be stuck in your mind for the next 30 minutes. My bell Oh, no. <laughs> oh, but anyway, no. What were those words again? <laughs> you know, oh, you get, man. But you get the idea. You know, the cream of 1965 was just incredible, and damn, we had good taste in 1965, considering what we ran up the charts. Uh, yeah, it, it was great. It was great. All right, Al, last word. I would sum it up, sum it up very succinctly. 1965 was the year that uh, when nearly all of the elements that made 60s rock great coalesced into what I feel is an unbeatable musical stew, and and I hope that I'm uh, uh, showing off those elements in those my daily posts um, <laughs> of the, the the you know the the 365 reasons why 1965 is the greatest year in the history of rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, you you definitely are, Jim. Are you following that on Facebook and Twitter? Okay, I think you've convinced me. Um, hopefully, I can, <laughs> hopefully, I can use this to convince a number of people for whom that period is way too foreign. I actually had to explain something to people from 1980 F and six earlier in my uh, day today. So uh, this is helpful. I do appreciate this. <laughs> well, we appreciate you. Are you coming to the Fest for Beatles fans? I know Susan will be there. Will you be there too? Are you familiar with the term "keeping the home fires burning"? <laughs> you know those logs need to be turned every four hours and 37 effing minutes. 
regularly. <laughs> you don't do that. That suddenly you've got embers that you cannot explain away. <laughs> You are too funny. Well, thank you so much for calling, and I will look forward to seeing you in March. I am looking forward to seeing you all then, too. Thank you Okay, thank much. you so much. Talk yes, to you soon. All right, bye-bye. Well, we've got one more caller on the line from the 630 area code, and I'm guessing that might be the famous Dr. Kit O'Toole. Are you there, Kit? You guessed correctly. <laughs> Hello. I'm doing great. Say hello to these gentlemen and fire away with your question. Well, I, I vaguely know these these gentlemen, but you know they're <laughs> no, no, they're all they're all wonder. I have all their books, of course, and and they're all wonderful. And uh, and I have a question. One of the things that uh, that you haven't touched on, you've touched on a lot of stuff already, is uh, the movie help and. Um, I was wondering what you thought uh, about first of all the really the the negative reviews uh, not entirely but a lot of negative reviews that it it got both in in you know it's uh, when it was first released in '65 and then as it's gone on it's still kind of uh, well it's not as good as Hard Day's Night so you know why do you think it got such initially mixed reviews and what do you think is its legacy today? Andrew, why don't you start? Well, I think um, they, the writers on that one, they, they got the, uh, Mark, I think his last name is Mark Ben, who wrote Charade with uh, Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, which was, you know, kind of a caper film. He did the plot, and then they brought in Charles Wood, who did these kind of military, kind of English military things to make the dialogue more British. But for some reason, it just didn't, click like the last one where you know hard day's night vincent canby was calling them the new march brothers and i mean the yeah. beatles were kind of disinterested in the process at this point you know and um but so i i, I think that it just didn't it just it, 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 it just wasn't as interesting but you know intellectually but uh i mean visually obviously it's beautiful and it set the template for the monkeys and rock videos and then it introduced the Beatles to the whole Indian thing, both music and also that, that guy came up, a Hindu gentleman came up when they were shooting something, gave them all books, I think like a yoga and Hindu book, and that obviously set George on the path. So I think the film had tons of great resonances. I think it's a very important film, but I just uh, think it was like a, a letdown after a hard day's night. Maybe for me personally, I know a lot of people love it, but that's just me personally. Right, right. Well, Chuck, do you agree, disagree? Are you a Hard Day's Night or a Help fan? Oh, Hard Day's Night, end of story. Uh, I think the thing for me is is uh, one word, color. Um, everybody grew up with the Beatles in black and white. I mean, I was at a John Fogarty concert last night, and John was talking about seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan for the first time, and he said, didn't we all just live in a black and white world back then? And the Beatles just look so great in black and white. I mean, on the Ed Sullivan Show, you know, A Hard Day's Night, the Washington Coliseum. I mean, they just looked fantastic. And Help comes out. And, you know, I mean, looking at it now, Help's a great movie, and I watch it from time to time. But there's just something about it that, I don't know, I, I, I just always go back to Hard Day's Night as, as, as being my world and uh, Help being kind of the new world. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of my take on it. All right. And Al, 
Are you a helper or a hard day's nighter? Um, a Hard Day's Night is one of my all-time favorite films. It's one of those films along with Casablanca and Yankee Doodle Dandy that I could almost recite from rote. Uh, but uh, but Andrew's, Andrew's absolutely correct that, that actually pro- Alan Owen, who did the screenplay for Hard Day's Night, probably should have done uh, the screenplay for, uh, for Help as well. Uh, but Help does have its moments. Um, there's some fine performances in there from uh, from Victor Spinetti, from Leo McKern, from um, uh, Eleanor Braun, and uh, and the the musical sequences. Uh, I mentioned last week the fact that Bert Schneider and Bob Rapelson, the two young producers who came up with the concept of the Monkees, uh, were very much influenced by A Hard Day's Night. They were perhaps even more influenced by the musical sequences in Help, because a lot of those uh, kind of um, uh, harken forward to the, you know, the, what they called the monkey romps on, on the TV show. Um, right. And, uh, but also there's some, uh, there, there are some, there's some nice moments. Uh, in the film, my, my favorite one is unfortunately I'm forgetting the man's name, and he just passed away very recently. The fellow who played the uh, the inspector from Scotland Yard, and oh yes, he, and they're they're in his office, and he says, "So this is the famous Beatles. How long do you think you'll last?" And John Lennon leans leans forward and says. Great train robbery. How's that going? And from, <laughs> exactly. from what I understand, there was a, a you know, like a charity uh, screening of the film in New York, and so there was a, a lot of um, uh, you know not teenagers, but a lot of the uh, kind of uh, liberal um, establishment of New York. And apparently, when jo- when John let out that line, the whole audience applauded. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So help definitely has its moments, and of course the uh, the music, which was yeah. a uh, you know the first quantum leap of 1965 from from what they had done on Beatles 65 and Beatles for Sale. Uh, this was the first leap with more to come. Mhm. Mhm. It, it, it's for me. I adore Help. It's such a quotable film. There's so many wonderful yes. quotes. We talked about the no more me. There's George's comment, which he mutters under his breath, and that same scene about I-, I know we're here, which sort of is a clue to his feeling about his role in the band and mm. so many quotable moments. Well, Bruce, last word. There's more here than meets the eye, Jude. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, sir. <laughs> so uh, I think part of the thing about A Hard Day's Night was it was what I call an unexpected masterpiece. You know, here you had the adult world saying, okay, so they fooled us and they were witty at the press conference, and they fooled us and they played some music, but these guys can't act, and certainly, you know, they can't entertain us for 90 minutes. And the film comes out, and the famous review, I think, was might have been the Village Voice, where it called it the Citizen Kane of Jukebox music, you know, Musicals. Right. Great line, and uh, to me it was also the duck soup of jukebox musicals. It had that Marx mm-hmm. Brothers influence. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you had great writing, 
which was important. It was done as a, you know, kind of almost a documentary type thing, thank God, in black and white. The reason it was done in black and white was they didn't want to spend the money on color, by the way. Right. But it, it's right. great in black and white. And, um, you, know, it, it, you know, once again, the Beatles were a black and white band growing up. So I think that's really important. And after you watch that film, even though the characters were exaggerated, you really felt you knew the Beatles and you knew Norman Shake, who were probably more or less based on real people anyway. So, yeah. you know, it, it gave you that really good feeling. Uh, you know, help comes along, and there's just no way it's going to be as good. Uh, you know, you, you just can't follow the, something like that. Um, you know, it'd be kind of like Orson Welles does Citizen Kane, and then he does his next movie, and they're like, well, it's no Citizen Kane. Okay. Right. But I did Citizen Kane, damn it. So I think here, you know, in a way, you're asking someone to compare, you know, Duck Soup and Citizen Kane to Goldfinger. Goldfinger right. is a great right. film. I, I love Goldfinger. Great James Bond movie, beautiful color, great humor in it, great chase scenes, excitement. And Help, of course, is a parody of, in a lot of ways, Goldfinger and, like, you know, the Harrods truck with the tax falling out of it as opposed to the Austin Martin and James Bond. So, right. you know, I think in those ways, um, you know, obviously A Hard Day's Night is a better film. But, you know, if I'm kind of in a goofy mood, you know, Help is great entertainment. You know, the, it's visually stunning. The songs are great. And the plot's kind of fun to follow. And I know people that, you know, younger people that to them they prefer Help because, first of all, they, you know, they don't like anything in black and white because they grew up with color and don't get the importance of it. And, you know, it, it has more things going on uh, in it than, you know, A Hard Day's Night, which is simply, you know, a day in the life of the Beatles type thing. Um, so right. I can understand why, why people have that appeal for help. I think they both are great films. Um, but, you know, when push comes to shove, obviously I've got to go with A, a Hard Day's Night. Yeah. And weren't they so very smart? Oh. Yeah, go ahead. For the for the Hard Day's Night people, um, The Knack, which was Richard Lester's film in between Hard Day's Night and Help, has a lot of that feel. It's it's black and white and also has like a pop star who's kind of a darker age than the Beatles. But that's, it has a lot of the, the jump cuts and the swinging London feel of A Hard Day's Night. So I, I, like, I would recommend that film to people who haven't seen it, The Knack, the knack. and how to get it. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, as opposed, you know, to, as and opposed the, to the rock group, The Knack. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The, the That's what you were playing in your car today, right, Bruce? I actually, I, I actually told you I was going to play the birds in my car today, and I did play the birds in my car today. But I got to admit that my Sharona is truly a guilty pleasure, as is my Bologna by Weird Al. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> I love it. Well, Kit, I, I want to say while you're on the line that one of the big events of the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans is going to be your book launch party for your long-anticipated book, Songs We Were Singing. And I got a, a preview of the book, and it is readable. It is so informative. It's a very user-friendly glimpse into the songs of the Beatles. And I can't wait for the party. We're going to kick it off and bring that book into the Beatles family. So thank you so much for writing it and for calling in. Oh, thanks, Jude. And I look forward to seeing all of you next month at the fest. Likewise. See you then, Kit. Absolutely. I'll, I'll be in touch very soon, Kit. Sounds good.
All right. Thank you. See you soon. See you soon. Well, we have another caller, and we only have three minutes, so I'm going to bring this caller on, but we're going to have to make this one snappy. From the 323 area code, uh-oh, that didn't connect. All right, so we've got one right here from 870. We're having a hard time with these last connections. I don't know if they're going to come on or not. They're, the little wheel is turning. There we go, 870. We've got three minutes. Fire away. Up, oh, it just disconnected. Well, we really were up against the clock anyway. So first of all, I want to say to all of you, thank you so very much for coming back two weeks in a row, giving up two Thursday nights to be here. This was a wonderful time. I appreciate it so much. Glad to do it. The show's a, you know, a lot of fun. Not only is it great when you do an interview show where the host knows what they're talking about, but to have so many great co guests as well i mean you know i love doing stuff like this so yeah anytime you can find an excuse to have me back i'll try to free a thursday night i loved it thank all of you and out the middle of the desert chuck and al i know you're so busy getting ready for the fest Uh, andrew thank you all very much thank you now see you guys all in august we will do it at the fest for beatles fans again it is the 14th through the 16th of August at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. And this is an example of the fine knowledge, the expertise, the information that you can get about the Beatles, along with the bands, along with the lookalike contest, along with the art and the fun and the fellowship. It is a great time. A splendid time is guaranteed for all is the motto of the Lapidos family. And it's not just a motto. It is something that they really produce. Get tickets at thefest.com. And next Thursday night, Thanks to the talent of one of my wonderful editors, Jacob Michael, you're going to get a sneak peek at Volume 4 in the John Lennon series, Should Have Known Better. You'll be hearing about the weekend that John and Cynthia, George and Patty, spent at Dromelin Castle in Ireland. Jacob will be reading the chapter so that you don't have to listen to my southern accent. Thanks to all of our great guests. We'll look forward to seeing all of you at the Fest for Beatles fans. And everybody, say good night. Say good night, Jude. Good night. Good night. Good night, John. Good night, John Bob. <laughs> Somebody turn off the light. Good night, Troy, and shine on. Day. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away.